Welcome to Man Up, the podcast by men, about men, and for men who want to be better fathers, husbands, leaders, and followers of Jesus. Today's topic, honoring God in our marriage. Are you ready? Man up. Yes, sir! Welcome, welcome, my friends. I'm your host, Jared Bullman, and this is your podcast, Man Up, with all of the information and encouragement that you need to be a better father, husband, leader, and follower of Jesus. We are a band of brothers. We are soldiers in arms, and we are comrades. We fight side by side, hand over hand, mile after mile, each helping the other until we all obtain the high calling of Jesus. Today we are joined on the front lines by a friend of mine, fellow evangelist, and someone who does a great deal of work in God's kingdom alongside his wife, Judy, in the area of helping us build marriages that glorify God. Mark Broyles is joining us today. Mark, how you doing, buddy? I'm doing all right, Jared. How about yourself? I'm doing pretty good. It's early here in the Pacific Northwest, but this is when I like to record because the house is super quiet. <laughs> I understand that. Now I'm at just... empty, empty nest mode, though, so the house is almost always quiet. Yeah, you guys like it when the house is louder because the grandkids have come to visit. <laughs> Absolutely. And speaking of those grandkids, you just recently moved from, from San Antonio, Texas. So how's life going? It's going well. We were about 18 hours from the grandkids, driving-wise at least, before. And now we're about an hour and 15 minutes. So it gives us a chance to spend a lot more time, be a lot more involved in their lives. Well, in Texas time, that's kind of right around, you know, being in the same neighborhood. <laughs> of course, you had to move out of state yes. to do that, but but I'm glad that you guys are able to be that close to them. Now, you do a lot of work beyond just you know, local evangelism that, as I mentioned, that you and your wife have taught uh, seminars and retreats for couples, and you really focus on helping them build marriages that honor God. How'd you get started doing that? For us, it started at least doing the retreats, seminars, that kind of thing. We started in 2000, so we've been doing it for about the last 22 years, uh, and we've been married a total of 44 now. Mainly got started in that because of the uh, home environment that I came out of. I came out of a completely uh, dysfunctional, uh, broken home uh, environment, and the people that I was best friends with when I was younger, their homes looked pretty much like my home did. So I just assumed that was normal, that that's the way people behave, that's the way homes work. I wasn't a Christian at that time. My family had no association with any church at all and met somebody who's, who was a Christian and whose family was dramatically different than mine. And after spending a good deal of time with them, I, I just recognized whatever, whatever was causing their family to be the way it was, I needed in my life. And so that's obviously prior to getting married, but that was when I came to Christ and that made a, obviously a gigantic difference in my life. And then Judy and I just focused on that because I realized there are so many families and couples that are struggling, even amongst God's people, that we didn't see anybody else doing this. And so we thought we just need to take this ministry up. Now, you mentioned there why you're such an advocate for this, that you saw you wanted to 
not break the cycle in your own life, but you wanted to help others break the cycle of what you saw growing up, kind of the dysfunctional home that a lot of words like divorce get thrown around alongside the word dysfunctional. What are some of the big challenges? This is going to be an off-sheet question for you here, but what are some of the big challenges that you see among our brethren when it comes to their homes and things that you're really focusing on in the, in the workshops and seminars and things like that? I think actually probably falls into two categories as far as the, the challenges, one much easier to correct than the other. And one is that I just think there is a gross uh, ignorance of what we are supposed to be and who we are supposed to be in a very daily application of that. In other words, as we even think about husbands, husbands love your wives. We understand that concept, but what does that mean on a day-to-day basis? And I think there are just a lot of us that are very ignorant. We don't know what it takes to make a marriage successful. We don't, we don't understand. We've gotten wrong views of that from Hollywood and from uh, television, from other things that uh, have caused us to have a skewed understanding. And so that one's easy enough to correct. Ignorance is corrected easily by knowledge. But secondly, I think we, we fight the same problem that, that Jesus said everybody fought in life in general. There's just, a, there's just a lot of selfishness. And so we butt heads a lot and struggle because we are over-focused on self. Yeah, it's, it's telling how much that particular sin comes up in, in all aspects of our life, that that we want to be those people who say that, you know, I am dead and Christ lives in me. But when it comes to our marriage or when it comes to our relationships with our brethren or it comes to our relationships even with our children, and, and that's that's the probably the one relationship where you hope everybody is really focused on the needs and the well-being of, of the other person because they're totally dependent upon you, that more and more what we see is that selfishness is is creeping into those relationships and sort of defining those relationships. And if you got two people that are entirely focused on self, they're never going to become one in any kind of in any kind of serious way other than living in proximity to one another. And I would agree with that completely. I, I think that we we fight a battle of here's the problem. There's always going to be conflict. So it's mm-hmm. not an issue of whether there's conflict. Marriage is the union of two sinful people. And so because of that, we're going to wound each other. And then right. when you have children, same issue. So, you know, how do we deal with that if we understand that I'm going to be battling self? Absolutely. So you're, this is getting into the show questions now. So you're an advocate for biblical marriage. And I'm assuming, you know, through your workshops, I haven't been a, nearly attended a couple of them and then just things didn't line out with meeting calendars and things like that. But I've heard, and I'm assuming that through your workshop, that you probably have a lot of men who seek you out personally for marriage advice. You mentioned that selfishness and lack of knowledge are two of the areas where we where we see Christians struggling. Um, what are some of the specific applications that you see guys struggling with the most in marriage, and and why are these areas such a struggle for men? Uh, and actually, I think that the fact that we're created male and female. I think presents in and of itself some of the issues that we're dealing with. As men, we think like men, and there's a natural assumption to think that our wives are going to understand that and to, in some way, think and can communicate like we do. And so I think men struggle mightily with the concept of communication 
with their wives because we look at communication for two totally different reasons. The, the wife very much looks at communication for the purpose of connecting and to really drawing into the relationship. Men have a tendency to look at conversation in order to, to solve something. And so we were not viewing it the same way. So I think communication and awareness of how critical those things are. I think men struggle when we don't realize that it is absolutely critical to our wife to make that connection. To, mm -hmm. to be able to have those conversations, even that are uncomfortable or feel sometimes stilted or forced to us. So I would think communication is one of the, the, the biggest and, and understanding how to demonstrate to her, her true value based on what I think first Peter three says. What are some things we can do to demonstrate the true value of our wives? I, I think there, there really are several things there. One, I think that if you could you can truly show her that her happiness, that her contentment is a priority to you. So in other words, know what matters to her. I can give you an example. I don't even remember the specific, but I remember Judy and I having a conversation several years ago, but we'd probably already been married 25 years or longer. And she made a comment to which I said, wow, I never knew that you even felt that way. And that was surprising to me. I mean, been married 25 years, but I was not aware of some of these aspects of her life. And so I think men really need to go out of their way to understand what matters to her so that they can do that. I think secondly, uh, you have to show interest in her life. Not only expect her to show interest in yours, but her interests are going to be different. The things that she reads, the, the, the kinds of things that she wants to go see movies, things of that nature, understand where her interests lie and show true interest in that. Don't just understand that she's there, but be interested because she's interested. And then I would tell you, thirdly, for me is just uh, the biggest need for men. We really struggle to show our wives that we both need and value her input. Mm -hmm. uh, very easy for men to get in a mode of thinking, if I could just get her to understand how logical my argument is, then she would agree with me. And, and so we work hard at getting her to agree with our position as opposed to truly helping her understand how valuable her input is to me. Uh, and I think that's just because we have kind of a need to win, to be right, right. Uh, and our egos get in the way. And that, that's a big challenge. Keith Stonehart and I were talking about that in the recent episode of this podcast where we were talking about repentance being a daily walk. And, and he had shared a lot of the struggles that he had had in his life going from rock musician to, you know, gospel preacher in a span of about 10 years and then being a preacher for 10 years beyond that. And I was sharing with him, you know, one of my struggles is exactly what you said, that by the time I get around to talking with Lauren about something, what I really want her to do, because I probably spent a couple of days thinking about it. What I want her to do is agree with me. I don't want to work through the, through the emotional levels of communication. But one of the things that I had to learn, and I wish I could say I learned it early on in my marriage, but it took me about 10 years to even sort of grasp the, the cusp of this is that if she's going to talk through something with me, because Lauren is one of those people that kind of draws everything in and processes it emotionally for a few days and then wants to talk about it. If she's going to talk about it, it can't be the logistic side of it. It can't be 
let's solve this like a Rubik's cube. She's got to vocalize the emotional components of it out loud in order for them to be real to her and make sure that I've understood, I've understood those things. And initially that was a little frustrating to me. It's like, I've, I've already worked through that. I don't need to talk through that again, but it took, I, I don't know what triggered that, that sort of epiphany in, in me. And I'm glad that I finally came to it and I don't do it perfectly, but it's exactly what you said. And it, it reminds me, Kenny Embry and I were talking about this, and you'll remember this, but the old YouTube video with the wife and the nail sticking out of her head, and it's not about the yeah, nail. Not about the nail. <laughs> and, and I used to see very plainly, and I think the point of the video is, is taking the man's side there, that it really is about the nail. Let me pull the nail out of your forehead. But you show that to, to women, and nine out of ten of them are going to say she wants to tell him the story about how the nail got there before he takes it out. And that level of communication requires both trust and empathy. And it, it, the root of empathy is really selflessness. It's wanting to feel with the other person. I think that's a great point. If we understand that we're communicating for two different reasons, then if I understand my job is to complete my wife, fulfill my wife, then I can start to understand or be aware why she needs to communicate or that she needs to communicate the way that she does so that I can allow that to happen. Absolutely. Now, I think you may have just answered this question, but I'm going to go ahead and, and ask it just outright so that maybe the, the guys will pick up on it because you know, we just talked about you know, understanding logic, but not the emotion. Do you believe that men have a more challenging time relating to their wives or is it the other way around? I, I would tell you, I used to, when we first started teaching these seminars, I would have leaned heavily toward men having a harder time uh, relating to or understanding. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I don't know that I feel that way any longer. As we deal with more and more of these seminars and as I deal with more and more couples individually, that I, I believe both have a real struggle comprehending the other side of the equation. And communication is a great example of that. Women really wrestle with understanding why the man is seeking to solve, why he needs to fix something. And, and so they don't like him to fix something, but I think there are times where she needs to let him fix the same as he needs to let her connect. It, it, both of us are created differently with different commands and with different ways of functioning, and God made us that way. Mm -hmm. and, and so I think there's an equal, an equal challenge on both to truly understand. And I think women are more relationship driven. So I think naturally women will work on the relationship side more than the man will. But I think both struggle with comprehending why the other side is functioning the way they are. I was thinking about that as you were talking there about the instruction in, in Titus 2, where the older women uh, are to be reverent in behavior and not slanderers and not given to much wine and teach good things. And specifically, they're supposed to teach in a correcting way the younger women to love their husbands, to, to love their children. And then you have the idea of discretion and chastity and to, and to make sure they're taking care of their obligations at home. Then you have that instruction in 1 Peter 3 about husbands living with their wives in an understanding way that what do those sets of instructions mean to you when you think of Let me start with that one, with, with the men, because I, I okay. think there's a tendency sometimes for us to want to uh, look at that as if what Peter is saying is that you need to understand your wife. Mm -hmm. And I would tell you, good luck, uh, because 
that's, that's not going to happen. I think God created us in such a way I can't ever think like a female because I am male and, and that's the way I process. She's never going to think like a male because she's female. But I think he says, live with her in an understanding way. The, the, here's the best way for me to understand that. We have three, they're all grown now, but when they were at home, they were dramatically different. They came from the same gene pool. They had the same instructions being raised, all of that, but they were dramatically different. And a great example of that would be discipline. We had one son that you could, you could look at, you know, with, with a cross face and, and look disappointed and it would break his heart and he would do anything he could to try to be pleasing to you. We had another son that had the attitude of bring it on. Is that the best you got? I had no idea why they were so dramatically different, though they were raised in the same home, though they were both biologically from the same set of parents, but they were different. And so I could not correct both of them the same. I don't understand why they turned out that way, but it doesn't matter. If I know that they did, then I can change the way I function. And I think that's what he's saying to husbands. Live with your wife in an understanding way. You may never figure out why she reacts the way she does to some things. But if you know that she does, then you can change your behavior accordingly. I, I understand that this is what's going to, to cause bad reactions. This is what's going to cause good reactions. And so I can function in a way that is an understanding way of living with her. I think the same with the, with the wife. And I would take you just stay in first Peter for a minute. I mm -hmm. think the statement that he makes to a wife when he's talking about uh, that, if you have a husband who's a non-believer, that by your behavior, you might win him. And it says very specifically without a word. I think that is significant. And that is because men are not won over by words. So women want to talk their husbands into something. Men want to solve those issues and both are failing at that. I, I think because we're not grasping the fact, so I think it's an understanding way, but I think both would indicate, and especially the passage in Titus would indicate, this is not a natural thing automatically that you understand how to do it. Right. Older women are to teach the younger women because they have learned through that process of being married, of raising children. And I think that's the way all of us are. It's a process by which I, I learn how the other person functions, not why the other person functions the way they do. Well, and that's, I, th I think that was something that in my own marriage, I've only now after, I mean, Lauren and I will be married 20 years next year, which, you know, blows my mind. I remember when we got to year 10, I said, babe, can you believe it's already been 10 years? And she looked at me like, I was crazy and then started counting and she went, you're right. And you, you blink and we're at 20. I mean, in that, in the 10 years in between, we've adopted a son. We've moved our house three different times to, we now live in the Pacific Northwest. There's been a lot of changes in our lives over 10 years. And during the first 10 years of marriage, I got to where I could pretty well guess what Lauren was going to say in any given situation. But after nearly 20 years of marriage, I still don't understand why she says those things. And having to be patient with her and allow her, and, and she with me, I know I'm not going to understand why we have to work through things the way that we do. I just know that it's, it's 
integral to her process of feeling whole. And one of the reasons why you don't have uh, husbands and wives that are the same, why men and women approach things differently, is you can look at sometimes the dynamic between daughters and their mothers or fathers and their sons where they're too much alike and they they don't complement each other at all because you're you're you see the best of yourself but you also see the worst things of yourself in in that other person and you want to correct it out of them so if that were in the husband wife relationship that would really make it a struggle i think even though you might understand that. I, think so, I think you're probably right that way that god knew what he was doing when he mm-hmm. created us so dramatically different so that we could fulfill each other we both have gaps and the other helps to fill those gaps in our life. And, and that's one of the beautiful things, and we'll get into that in a couple of questions, but that is one of that beautiful, the beautiful things about that statement in Genesis 2, that she's a helper suitable, his opposite. And that's not just talking about the physical relationship. It goes back to that statement that God made, it's not good for man to be alone. You can see that God knew from the beginning that it wasn't good for man to be alone because he created all the animals, male and female. The statement, it's not good for man to be alone, isn't a shock to God. It's a lesson to Adam that what I'm giving you is not another animal. She is somebody who is for you specifically because just like the animals are paired off male and female, there are dynamics to man that are greater than animals because it goes beyond just the sexual need because he made us in his image that we have emotions we have the ability to process through things both logically and emotionally we also are striving to grasp eternity all of those are areas where husbands and wives complement each other absolutely and for me i can tell you it's a big help when i realize that word that he used in the hebrew when he's talking about a helper suitable or a helpmeet is most frequently used of God, that he is our Ezer or our helper. And so if I understand that he is the complete fulfillment of of what is missing in me and that I need to allow him to fill that, I, I get a better concept of how the husband-wife relationship should work, which I think is why Ephesians 5 even points to the concept of Christ in the church. Yeah, that that's... That, There's something much bigger than just our marriage. Right. And I know we're going to talk about that in a few questions, but I just wanted to get that out there because that's that's such an important thought. And I don't know it's a thought that I I fully appreciated until just a few years ago. And I say fully appreciated, but there are things that I think about it uh, even now when he talks about the husband being the head of the wife. Well, you need to go back and learn all of Jesus's lessons that he tried to teach the apostles on being the head. And it's never self-serving. It is always using all of your capacity and energy and strength to protect and to sanctify and to defend the other. Let's get back to this one question here. As the name would imply, our program primarily has an audience of men. And thinking about men today and thinking about all of this, the struggles uh, that men face in both their roles as husbands and fathers and even in, in just being men in the 21st century, what are the avenues where the devil seems most active to you? I think probably these days, at least first in the concept that societally, at least, that we are being pushed into, that that as if there is some fault in being a man and truly being a man. And Mm -hmm. so society is trying to create men 
who think, I think, who think more like women, who process more like women. We're, we're trying to take the manhood out of man as if something is wrong with that. Whereas if, if man is truly the man that God expects him to be, then there is nothing wrong with that. He does not abuse that position at all. Like you said, if he understands how Christ was the head, how Christ was the, it was indeed a master and yet was completely a servant. He doesn't abuse that, but we we're being forced on every hand to feel as if to stand up and be a man in today's society is somehow a fault. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I think that is problematic. I, I think secondly, I think Satan is gifted in trying to change our view of what the whole relationship is supposed to be. And now in our culture, he's made that so extremely easy so that people are viewing, men are viewing uh, things such as the physical relationship based on things that are presented to them in semi-pornographic or completely pornographic terms. That it, they start getting the wrong expectations of what a physical relationship is even supposed to be. And because that is presented out there so easily and so accessible, and so many men have certainly, some obviously struggle with it mightily, but almost every man has been exposed to it. Mm -hmm. And and the concept that changes our expectations, uh, I think we end up very challenged as to how should I, how should I do this whole relationship? So I, I think just in, for me, in what he has presented by way of technology, I think men are, are also very, very difficultly struggling with uh, overcommitment. And so I get, so, he gets me committed to so many things, makes me feel as if I'm participating in 50 things, somehow I'm better than if I'm participating in five and taking care of my wife and family. Right. Busy is a virtue. That, yes. that, that last one is a conversation Lauren and I have a lot because I am one of those people who, who she calls me, her, she calls me her Atlas and that's not a, an endearing nickname. It's you know, the weight of the world rests on my shoulders in my mind at times. And she will sometimes just walk up to me and put her hands on my shoulders and look me in the eyes and say, babe, it, it doesn't have to be all you. And you know, as a, as a preacher, e even in a congregation, that's blessed to have elders. As a preacher, one of the things that that I struggle with is trying to take on everybody's emotional burdens. And I'm not a person that processes emotions very well to begin with. And in fact, if I can share anything with her, and I know that the the situation doesn't warrant complete secrecy, sometimes I will hand her my phone and say, "Babe, emotional secretary, could you could you read this text message and tell me how I'm supposed to respond to this person?" And she'll chuckle at it and she always helps me. And, and she'll say things like, I like what you did there. Not so much here. <laughs> and so. Yeah. And I, I had a great discussion with a young preacher the other day. He, he called me about some things and we were talking and he talked about how incredibly swamped he was mm -hmm. and how that was stealing time. And I said, you know what? One of the great benefits of having preached as long as I have and, and being the age that I am, I, I feel quite adequate to say no. I really do work at saying, you know what, my family and my relationships, my wife, my children are every bit as important a task that God has given me as anything else I do as a preacher. Amen. And that's, that's one of the things that I've come to is that sometimes 
when I feel myself overly committed. And, and Will is one of those kids, he doesn't need a lot of attention, but boy, quality time is one of his love languages. And he really will let me know if he's felt neglected for a day or two. <laughs> He'll come knock on my door and say, Daddy, could you come down and play Legos with me? It's been a long time since we played. And talk about dagger in the heart when he says that. Oh, absolutely. I, I think that one of the lessons I learned early on that was very helpful, both as far as marriage and for the children, was that I had been told, you know, quality time is more important than quantity time, quantity of time. And I've come to truly believe there's no such thing as quality without quantity. Yeah. I, I can't give five minutes of quality time to my wife. She needs quantity of time as well. Matter of fact, it is the one, number one thing that women respond if they are asked, if there's one thing your husband would give you, what would you ask for? More time it is the consistently number one answer. And so the quantity is needed to achieve quality. Yeah. And, and sometimes the way that, even though I work from home, one of the ways that I make time in our relationship is if she's got a task like, Lauren takes the cleaning of the house as her, as her realm. That that's what she wants to do. That's how she serves our family. I mean, she does other things too, but if the house is, is in a little bit of a disarray, Lauren feels like she's failing and I'll see that she's got laundry that she's doing. She's got dishes that she's doing. She's trying to encourage Will to straighten up the Legos you know, that came out that morning or something of that nature. And, and she considers it time with her just for me to stop what I'm doing and go downstairs for an hour or so and talk with her while she's doing that and help her. And I wouldn't, in my mind, that's not really quality time. There's nothing romantic about it, but in her mind, it's just the volume of time spent in conversation and, and trying to help lift her burden that means something to her. But I, I want to step back to the pornography thing because, and None of these interviews are, are scripted in any kind of way. I give them questions and I allow them to answer however they would like to answer those questions. And it's interesting to me that, that three or four guests have brought up pornography as one of the, the main issues affecting men today. And I think that that is both, in a way, it's both good and bad. It's bad because it's out there and it's bad because it's, it's a problem that seems to be growing. The good side of it is that now we seem to be talking about it, that before it was always sort of sequestered and men weren't trying to get help with it. You know, I'll stop eventually, I think, was the attitude that a lot of people took into that. And Keith Stonehart was talking about that in his recent interview, and he, and he used the example where, you know, we've convinced boys that if you refrain from physically having sex, that you've kept yourself pure. We haven't tried to tell them this, This is, but this has been the takeaway, but you can go view as much pornography as you want to. And that leads to, number one, broken relationships, but it also leads to this weird coming together between husbands and wives early in the relationship where women have heard, you know, don't do anything in the sexual realm because all sex is bad, which is a terrible thing to be teaching anybody. And the husband is expecting the things that he has viewed while he was, you can't see the air quotes here, but saving himself for marriage. And he's expecting that on the wedding night, which is also bad. So how do we correct 
these attitudes, any of those or all of the three things that you mentioned, how do we help our younger men come to a better place and overcome what the devil's trying to do to them? I think there's a couple of things I would tell you first is, is a very physical and, and practical thing. I think for our, as fathers and even as husbands, we need to understand how easily accessible these things are and how it is something that is going to keep calling us back then critical for husbands and fathers to put good, strong internet filters on uh, their computers, on their phones, on their children's phones mm-hmm. and, and computers. You can't block them from a hundred percent of the time because they have access to other computers or, or other people's devices, but very critical to have a good, strong filter and an accountability filter. But secondly, I think if husbands and fathers would, would value their wives the way that they should and help their child understand their, their men, their, their boy children, especially help them understand what God's view of a woman is and why she is so precious and so to be protected as far as her virtue, then I think we can help them get a better concept of what it is supposed to be like. I, I do think that you bring up a great point because we're fighting this from two different ends. It used to be much more. I mean, unfortunately, 44% of girls who are 14 to 17 say they have viewed pornography at school or in other places. That number is way higher than it used to be for girls. So they are also getting involved in that. But we fight a battle where sex is viewed from both ends of the pendulum, very rarely in the middle where it belongs. And you've got one group who is saying, that anything goes, that's our society, anything Mm -hmm. and everything goes. And so we create wrong expectations. And then the other side, like you said, where women have been convinced that there is, there's a dirtiness to it. And that's why you have old time religious authors, Jerome and Augustine and others who, who considered sexual relationships, even within marriage as sinful, if it was not for the purpose of having children. So there was no such thing as a sexual relationship in marriage for the purpose of enjoyment or pleasure between the two people. Mm-hmm. And so women have been kind of convinced of that as well. I think here's the key. And I know that was a long way getting here, but here's, here's the key. If, if we get the concept that everything about marriage points to God and his holiness and our holiness, I did a lecture at Florida College in 2016 that was called The Spiritual Nature of Sexuality, where that was my whole task, was to define what can we learn about God because we are sexual creatures in marriage. How does that help me learn something about God? Because everything in marriage, if Christ and the church is the is the real picture and marriage is the is the type of that then what do i learn what can i learn about god because of the sexual relationship and so if i understand that even the sexual relationship points to something way higher than any of the physical side of it then i think i can get a better understanding of why it needs to be treated the way that god treats it well, and that's one of the dangers of, of sullying it 
with, you know, I'm thinking about, you know, first Corinthians six, where he talks about, you know, the, the sexual union, you know, with, with a, a prostitute is, is defiling to the body and that it, it is supposed to be holy. And you can read a book like Song of Solomon and see that God is very intent on, on the sexual relationship glorifying him. And it is meant to be joyful for men and women. It is meant to make them feel connected to one another, that there is supposed to be desire there beyond just the need to procreate. Sarah chuckled about having pleasure again with Abraham when she told she was going to have a child, that it, there's obviously something there that God intended to be something beyond just fulfilling the need to be fruitful and multiply. That that's one of the dangers of sullying it with other things, whether it be premarital sex or adulterous or pornography or any number of things, is that you're taking something that God has made special and in a unique way for mankind, and you're taking it in a direction that he didn't intend it to go. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. But I do think it's important, and to help young men as they're growing up, understand, look, the things that you're feeling God put those in you. The, the, the drive that you have sexually, God put that in you. Men are not, we have a lesson that we, that we reference at one of the marriage retreat where we just say, men are not dogs. You know, sometimes women think, man, all they're interested in is the physical union. But, but God created me with the drive that I have sexually. He created me with the desire that I have to look upon the beauty that he created in the woman's body. God made us the visual creatures that we are. It, it was God who had the words penned that said, let her breasts satisfy you at all times. And so God understands that there, there is a woman created that causes me to feel what I feel. What he wants me to understand is the only way to truly appreciate the holiness of that is to approach it the way that God approaches it. So it can be absolutely, and should be absolutely pleasurable. It should be absolutely fulfilling for both man and woman. It just should absolutely be within the bounds of marriage. And, right. and so helping, I think our young men understand that Hey, all these things are perfectly normal. And God has made a provision for you uh, to fulfill all of these things. There's nothing wrong with the desires that you have. Just understand there are proper ways to fulfill the desires. When should we start talking to our children about this? I've told people recently that whenever you start, you can bet the devil's already got a runner on second. But you know, I've known people who felt like you didn't want to talk to them until they were engage, that might provoke some sort of desire. And I've known people who thought, well, you need to wait until they're deep into high school in, because you don't want to provoke the desire. When should parents be talking to their children about these things, both boys and girls? Because we mentioned we're giving the wrong impression to girls, just like we're giving it to boys. Yeah, I, I think that certainly as, since we're dealing mostly with the boys, let me, I'll just mention the girls real quickly first. But women need to have these discussions with the girls I think fairly early on as well, so that they can understand the, the nature of the purity of and the beauty of, and yet still understand why they need to, to absolutely abstain prior to marriage. With, with our boys, I, I think the age has probably, unfortunately, gotten considerably younger than we would like it to be, like you mm -hmm. say, because 
their, their friends are talking about it from a very early age on, if they're at school uh, or in other environments, or, or you can turn on television and even the most benign of, of shows will have subject matter that would have never existed in those kinds of shows, you know, a few years ago. So it's going to come up pretty early. So I don't, I think if you wait till high school, your kids probably have what they feel is all the knowledge they already need on the subject. And so I think that's, that's way late. I, I think you're probably going to have to at least start the discussions, maybe even uh, upper grade school, uh, adolescence, you know, 11, 12 years old, at least as they're getting into junior high school, you just have to limit what you talk about because mm-hmm. obviously you can, you can address subject matter with kids that is above their heads even though they're going to hear people say things. So I don't want to give my kids information that they don't know what to do with. Right. I want to make sure they have some comprehension of what we're talking about. So to some degree, it's also going to depend on the maturity level of the child, you know, what they can, what they can oh, handle, absolutely. what they can't handle. And, you know, we've, absolutely. we're a long way from having, you know, the major talk with Will, but I've already been laying, you know, he's only eight, and I've already been laying some of the groundwork for that because... Like you said, it does come up. It comes up in in even things that are considered family entertainment. There are innuendo about people having sex that yep. we, you know, you walk through the shopping mall and Victoria's Secret is right there. And he learned at a very early age, not because I taught him, but because he, he saw me do it to avert his eyes when you walk past those kinds of stores or you're inevitably walking through JCPenney and you come upon that section and you try to route around it. And now, now not only does he avert his eyes, he looks over at me to make sure I'm being consistent in it, which is kind of a whole other discussion. And and I would always tell him, I was proud of him, you know, when I saw him doing that, not always, but every once in a while I tell him, you know, I'm really proud of you for doing that. And he will always, (laughs) the other day he told me, me too, daddy, I'm proud of you. (laughs) And I thought, those kind of discussions you can have and trying to train them in ways that they won't even fully comprehend the why of some of that training. And that's the nature of training our children. They don't understand the why of everything we're teaching them, but getting them to start thinking in those terms is very helpful. Right. And that's one of the things that we had to have a discussion with him, that some of those things are things that ladies have to wear and there's nothing wrong with them. What's wrong is to display them in a way that everybody can see them because those things ought to be secret between husbands and wives and they shouldn't be on display for everybody to see. And it allowed us to have sort of the, the preamble to the discussion, if you will. Now we've already talked about what does it mean to live with our wives in an understanding way, but what practical advice do you give to men about that and how does it apply to our daily lives? I think, again, this takes me back to the concept of awareness as to what it is that she truly needs. We have a lesson in one of our seminars that is called, what does she want from me anyway? Because Mm -hmm. men wrestle with that. I I think most Christian men want to do for their wives what is best. They just don't know what their wives want. But I think the question is more understanding what she truly needs. And if we understand that God says to the husbands in Ephesians 5, husbands love your wives, then, and, and to the wives, he does not say that. To the wives in Ephesians 5, he says, submit to your husbands, or later in verse 33, he says, respect your husbands. I think that is because 
the most prevailing need in women is to be loved. I think that's why women will ask their husbands when a husband would rarely, if ever, ask his wife the same thing. A woman will ask her husband, do you love me? And, and that shows up from a lot of different things. It, it, she wants to feel secure. She wants to feel that value, uh, that connection in marriage. And so if I understand that that security to her, matter of fact, Holly Faith Phillips said this in her book, for most women, security isn't primarily a material thing. It doesn't come from knowing in our heads that all our needs are provided for. Security for women is primarily a heart thing. Our deepest feelings of security come from being loved and cared about. And so how do I demonstrate on a daily basis how much I truly care uh, about my wife and love my wife? I'm meeting with or counseling with, whatever you want to call it, a, a young couple right now that I ask the question because they're struggling with some of these things. And I asked him the question based on Ephesians 5, where God says, nourish and cherish her. I said, if I were to ask your wife, do you feel truly cherished? What do you think she would respond? Because there are things that we do for people, but does she necessarily feel cherished? So I think men, if they would look at the words in, in Ephesians chapter 5, uh, where you think Christ gave himself for the church. He nourishes and cherishes. He, he sanctifies or purifies. What am I doing to demonstrate to my wife how I am sacrificing for her like Christ did for the church? Am I sacrificing that time for her? Am I willing to turn off the TV? Am I willing to just listen to what she has to say? What am I doing to truly demonstrate that I want to spend that time with her? I would tell you, secondly, one of the things that I think is important is she wants to connect and we wrestle with that, Dude, allowing entry into our world. And I'll give you an example of that. I'm not a phone guy typically, but my best friend outside of my wife, my best friend in the world is Ralph Walker, the guy that taught me the gospel. And he and I do these marriage retreats together since 2005. But Ralph and I can be talking on the phone. And we may talk for 45 minutes on the phone. And I get off the phone. Her first question is always the same. What did you talk about? <laughs> and I'm thinking, are you kidding? I was on for 45 minutes. Do you want me to rehearse everything that we talked about? Which is not a good question because she'll say yes. And, and I just know if she's talking to one of her friends for 45 minutes and hangs up, my first thought is, please don't tell me what you all were talking about. So we're viewing that entirely differently, but I need to allow, she's not just being nosy. She feels secure when I allow her entry into my world. When she asks, how was work? Fine is a good, is a good answer. If my son asks me that fine is not a good answer. If my wife asks me that mm -hmm. I need to, to detail, allow her to know the kind of things that are going on in my life. So I think men have to truly seek to make that connection. If I understand, if I'm going to live with her in an understanding way, the practical side of that is truly seeking to figure out what her needs are and how they're fulfilled. And sometimes that is just asking her, but it's also just noticing.
Uh, do we pay attention to the things that go on uh, around us? Uh, I always talk about women, they're called the fairer sex, which is a great misnomer because they're going to ask you questions that are completely unfair. <laughs> One of those, I mean, and most men have been asked this at some point. Have you ever had a wife say, notice anything different? You know, oh, that's now crap. You, yes, you know, you're in a world of hurt because if the question has even come out, you don't even know if she's talking about on her person, in the house, whatever, with the kids, whatever. The, the key to answering that is to pay attention and notice and preempt the question. We were sitting at our table. Let me just give you an example. We're sitting at our table one time with some friends over and one of our sons was home visiting and our son looked at the young lady that was at the table, uh, her and her husband were visiting with us and we had known them for quite a while and the kids had known him too. And he looked at this girl and he said, Hey, did you do something different with your hair? And she looked at her husband. She didn't look at my son. She looked at her husband. And she said, yes, I did three weeks ago. Thank you very much for noticing. Her husband had never said anything. And I think that's the key. Am I paying attention? Do I understand how important that is to her? Because I'll, I'll be honest with you. I'm not really concerned if Judy notices what I wore yesterday. I'm not really concerned if I were to come in and she says, hey, you got your hair cut a little differently today that's not going to affect me at all, but it would affect her greatly. And so if I say, you know what, you remember when you had that blue dress on a few days ago, man, you look so good. That is gigantic in her mind, not only because I noticed, but I remembered what she was wearing a couple of days ago and I made it a point to compliment her on that. I think men need to ask questions so that they understand what their wife needs and they need to notice and pay attention. Brother, you need to invent an app that will remind men what their wives wore two days ago. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever seen Tim, Tim Hawkins. He does a, a thing where he talks about that. He says, we need like women GPS, you know, yeah. say something about her shoes. Yeah. So, <laughs> but would we say the right thing? Probably, well, I think noticing and asking the questions are the key. You want to live with her in an understanding way? Ask her, you know, Hey, what can I do? Where, where can I best fulfill you? And, and noticing the things, cause she'll let you know, she'll make remarks about things. I know Judy will do that. You know, she just might remark about a place mm -hmm. or, or I think, you know what, it'd be a great place. Let's take a day trip there. Yeah, absolutely. So I heard you use the example, and I don't remember if this was in the meeting that you came and preached for us in Centerville, or if it was watching the, the videos of one you did at Southside in uh, Pasadena, Texas. But I heard you use the examples of waffles and spaghetti. And I have used that ever since. And you were, you were linking it to the idea of living with your wife in an understanding way and, and the mutual need for understanding. Could you tell our audience about waffles and spaghetti? I mean, that sounds like the strangest meal ever, but. Yeah. And it's funny because I almost didn't read that book that was called men are like waffles, women are like spaghetti, because in doing all the marriage seminars we have, I had read countless, countless books on the, 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 that were comparative type books, you know, men are like clams, women are like crowbars, you know, Mars and Venus, those kind of things. Yeah. <laughs> so. But the waffles and spaghetti, I almost didn't read and I picked it up and it had maybe the single best chapter on communication differences that I had come across. And that was where this example was most helpful to me. 
So it, it describes it by saying men are like waffles in the sense that if you look down at a waffle, all you see is a bunch of squares, uh, little boxes, right. Right? and men process that way. Social scientists call that compartmentalizing. That's, I mean, that's not just a, a, a creative illustration. Right. It, it's a truth that's understood. We have boxes that, that we process in and, and we want to stay in the single box that we're in, whatever mm -hmm. it is. And uh, so we process that way, but women process differently. And we can talk about the way men process it on, on another time, especially if we're trying to give advice to women so that they understand, but men, women process he, in this book, it talks about communication like spaghetti, look down at a plate of spaghetti, take your eyes and pick the end of one noodle and try to follow it to the other end of that noodle. You will seamlessly change from noodle to noodle without ever realizing that you have done so. Uh -huh. And so because of that, that the understanding that that's the way women are processing information. So it means I need to communicate differently. An example would be for me personally, an example would be how all those things are connected. Three or four days ago, Judy started a conversation with this line. Have you seen her daughter? I said, I don't even know who her is. Who is her? And she goes, the lady next door, you know, we just moved into a new house. She said, the lady, the lady next door, have you seen her daughter? I saw her daughter out today. We had been talking about the neighbors maybe the day before. And for her, that, that conversation was still going on, even though nothing was being said. And, <laughs> and, and so that, that happens so easily. And so in the book, he describes a situation that I think is, he's describing the concept of work. The man comes home, the, the wife says, how was work? He says, fine. She works outside the home. She comes home. She, he says, Hey, how was work today? He wants an answer like fine, but she says work was great. Remember that suggestion that I told you that I gave my boss a couple of weeks ago, he accepted that suggestion and they're going to go ahead and implement that idea that I had. And I was so glad to hear that because it, it just makes me understand that he appreciates women as much as he does men and will take a suggestion from a woman like he will a man, which makes me appreciate you because I know you give great respect to me and to our daughter, Brittany, about the ideas that we have. And don't forget, Brittany has a soccer game on Thursday. And when we go to the soccer game on Thursday, I have already invited her best friend, Lindsay's parents over for dinner on Saturday night. And I wanted you to remember that we had that dinner. And the guy's thinking, are you kidding me? <laughs> I asked, how was work? And we're talking about Lindsay's parents coming over for dinner on Saturday night. How did we get there? Yeah, and, and I think uh, this conversation keeps going. It's going to get into the names of grandchildren really quickly. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, and what happens is it, it just helps us understand every thought and every process is connected to every other thought and every process in her life. That is not true in mine. I'm processing in boxes and solving one issue at a time, uh -huh. but she is not. So if I'm going to live with her in an understanding way, I need to grasp the fact that that's the way she processes. I'll never process that way, I don't think. I understand that. But she does. Mm -hmm. And so that's what allows that connection. That's why even though men are hesitant to, as I say, it's like a train journey, you know, conversation with your wife. We don't want to get on the train because we don't know where it's going and we don't know when it's going to stop. But sometimes you just have to pack your bag and jump on the train. That's living with her in an understanding way and let her connect all the dots. Absolutely. And that's and, all she wants to do. 
And another time I'm going to get you back on here to talk about how we can do a better job communicating our needs because to our wives, because I know, you know, being a dyed in the wool waffle that when my compartments start overflowing and bumping into each other, that's kind of a crisis point for me that when, you know, my work life starts affecting the way that I feel about, or the conversations I'm having with Lauren or the conversations I'm having with Will, that's a crisis point. And, but we, we yeah, can talk. That's a great point. Yeah. But we can talk about that more another time because you, you were, you were right, uh, right there. You were talking about jumping on the train and taking a journey. And, and that sort of makes me think of another question. What's the best piece of marriage advice that you've ever been given? And what's the worst? The, the worst is, is probably the, the easiest. And, and I, there's been a lot of bad marriage advice uh, over the years. That's for sure. But I remember very early being very early on being told, Hey, you need to understand marriage is a 50, 50 proposition. And th that's, that's just bad advice. It, it, it's not a 50, 50 proposition. It, it's a, it's a 100% proposition on both ends of the equation. Right. It, it has nothing to do. My responsibility as a husband has absolutely nothing to do with whether my wife fulfills her responsibility as a wife. And so once I understood God expects me to be what I'm supposed to be, regardless of how anybody else responds, I think that's true in Christianity as well, that God's not saying, Hey, Mark, you need to be nice to the nice people. He's saying, you're a Christian. Here's who you need to be period. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the way Ephesians five is. So once I came to an understanding of it's really a hundred percent to the, to the new entity which is the union, not the individual, then mm -hmm. that was helpful. 50-50 was not helpful to me. And I think maybe the, the, the most helpful advice to me was actually came through one of the books that I read when Gary Thomas in his book, Sacred Marriage, talks about the whole concept of how we have been misled into thinking what marriage is for. And he just asked the question, what if marriage wasn't made to make you happy? What if marriage was made to make you holy? And I thought, you know what? That's a, that's a game changer. And now he goes on to say, marriage will make you happy if you're holy. And, and so like the Beatitudes, happiness is never the goal to strive. Blessed are the pure in heart. You know, blessed are uh, the poor in spirit. Be who you're supposed to be. That's where the contentment and the true joy comes from. So we're striving for the wrong goal sometimes. And so once I understood, hey, here's, here's something you need to grasp. Don't strive for the wrong goal. Unfortunately, my friends, this is when I have to break in and tell you that you have to come back on Saturday for part two of our interview with Mark Broyles. And this has been a great interview. I think it's one of the most important ones that we've done on Man Up, and I'm looking forward to you hearing the second half of this. Mark is a tremendous blessing when it comes to talking about marriage and being faithful husbands. And this is a great time to remind you that our broadcast days are changing. I mentioned this a few weeks ago. Things were getting a little crowded on Fridays, so we're moving from Friday and Monday to Wednesday and Saturday, and this is the first official week of the Wednesday-Saturday broadcast. So I hope that you will come back on Saturday for the second half of this, and I look forward to talking with you then. Until then, have a good day, God bless, and man up.
dismissed.